Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion, winner of the best talk show at the 2011 2SER Awards. On this summer edition of Unearthed Stories from 2003, we have anti-gravity and cemetery chemistry with Tim Baines, rising sap with Keir Smith and Marion Carruthers reports on the attractive science of men's armpits. The stories were all recorded at the FM radio quality bitrate of 20 kilobits per second. So please forgive the roughness of the authentic, antique sound. But first up, here's some 2012 news. A new Alzheimer's disease treatment offers hope for all our memories. A study at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston found that suppressing a molecule called PKR improve the memory and learning of mice. PKR signals the brain of viral infections and may have an inflammatory effect. PKR regulates the way neurons normally talk to each other, but it also has a stress response. Alzheimer's patients' brains have much more PKR than healthy people's brains. They found that when mice are genetically engineered to have PKR production suppressed, then gamma interferon increases communication between neurons, making all brain functions more efficient, including memory. The goal is to find a drug that inhibits PKR and enables gamma interferon in the same way. This could end up with a brain-boosting drug like the one portrayed in the movie Limitless. Researchers have injected a PKR-suppressing drug into mouses' stomachs, and it's been absorbed to successfully suppress PKR. This suggests a pill would work as well as an injection. To test the mice, they put them through behavioural tests. In one of the tests, mice had to find a hidden platform in a pool using landmarks and visual cues. It took days of repetition for normal mice to remember where to find the platform, but the mice on the PKR-suppressing drugs learned after just one try. The mice deficient of PKR seemed just as healthy as normal mice, despite not having access to the immune protection of PKR, most likely because the brain has many other signals of infection that were still working. The brain optimization pill won't be ready for a few years. People with diagnosed memory problems will be the first people to benefit. But it seems likely that if it proves safe, it would be more popular than coffee. of the future, 
but not the very distant future. It is a story that might have taken place the day after tomorrow. Like all stories of the future, however, its beginnings lie far back in the past. As far back as the first man on Earth to gaze at the stars and wonder if someday, somehow, he might travel to them. Travel through space. Sometimes mishaps occurred, and men paid for them with their lives. But the work went on. Dr. Tim Baines, in 2003, reported on the curious story of the 21st century search for anti-gravity and the strange case of the disappearing researchers. Anti-gravity, is it NASA's best-kept secret or pseudoscience? Well, to answer that question, you're going to have to use your own judgment, but for the next few minutes, I'm going to tell you all we know about it. But keep an open mind, because the plot gets very thick indeed. Back in 1992, a Russian physicist called Yevgeny Potkletnov claimed he had found a way to defeat gravity. He was very serious. His experiments and methods were very thorough, and he published his discovery in a reputable international physics journal. Surprisingly, no one took much notice. His experiment was quite simple, although demanding in the specifics. He took a superconducting disk and cooled it down to minus 233 degrees Celsius, then levitated it over a strong magnet, then applied alternating electric current to coils surrounding the whole apparatus. The alternating current had to be changing about 100,000 times a second, and this caused the superconducting disk to rotate. Okay. Then, according to Podkletnov, when the disk was spinning at 5,000 revs per minute, the strength of the Earth's gravity immediately above the disk was decreased by 1%. Doesn't sound that impressive, really, until you think that there shouldn't be any effect at all, really. Uh, in fact, current theories about the unification of the forces of gravity and electromagnetism say this shouldn't occur until you hit energies many billions of times greater than that in Podkletnov's laboratory. Four years passed and he tried to publish another paper, but this time Britain's Sunday Telegraph found out beforehand and they pasted the headline everywhere that Potkletnov had invented the world's first anti-gravity device, though perhaps with somewhat less detail than Potkletnov's original paper. Physicists from all over the place suddenly took notice, although only to rubbish the research and generally criticise the whole thing as pseudoscience. Potkletnov lost his job and disappeared. At the University of Alabama, a theoretical physicist by the name of Ning Li was researching her theory on how to convert electromagnetic fields into gravitational fields. She had quite separately arrived at the same experiment as Potkletnov, only being a theorist, she didn't have a lab in which to test her theories. So, Li contacted Ron Kokzor in NASA's nearby Marshall Space Flight Center. For the next two years, they tried to replicate the gravity generator, but eventually they had to give up and say there was no effect they could measure. However, Coxor admitted that they hadn't truly replicated Podkletnov's experiment. Among other discrepancies, the composition of NASA's superconducting ring was subtly different to the one the Russian used. 
It was about this time, 1997, that Podklednov reappeared in his own lab at Moscow State University and offered the special superconductor recipe to the American researchers. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic, another physicist at the University of Sheffield, England, is also trying to make a gravity generator. Clive Woods believes there may be an effect to be observed, but is trying to replicate Podkletnov's exact conditions as much as possible. But he isn't doing this alone. He has attracted the support of Britain's military and aerospace company, BAE, who reckon it's worth a gamble. Podkletnov is not supported by major aerospace organizations, but he is still working away in Moscow and claims he has an improved design and is trying to patent his ideas. However, after his dismissal, he has remained cautious and evasive, refusing access to anyone who wants to see his gravity generator, perhaps with good reason. He says the last time he allowed Japanese visitors inside, they tried to bribe technicians into giving away detailed plans. Stranger still, Podkletnov was interviewed by New Scientist in 2002, and when he asked for outside, and when the journalist asked for outside references, the journalist was given an untraceable email address to a Professor Takashi Nakumara at the Toshiba Company in Japan. When Professor Nakumara was pushed for real documents, he disappeared into the Ethernet. And the missing persons list doesn't end there. After leaving NASA and establishing her own lab, Ning Li has been off the radar for a few years. Discovery has found out that she's now associated with a Canadian consulting company in Toronto and is apparently still doing work in the area, having published a paper recently on gravity generation in April 2003. Alas, the subject of that paper was to report, yet again, no measurable gravity-changing effect. Back at NASA, Ron Coxor has finally bit the bullet and forked out US $600,000 to once and for all completely reproduce the experiment first done by Podkletnov in 1992. So far, nothing. But discovery awaits. And even if NASA comes up with nothing again, there's still a queue of physicists in France, Canada, and working for Boeing that want to have a crack. That was Dr. Tim Baines speaking to us from 2003 on the search for practical anti-gravity. Next up, Keir Smith explains the mystery of how sap rises in trees. Looking up at the leaves and branches of tall trees leaves me wondering, how does the tree get the sap all the way from its roots to its highest reaches? Many people have come up with explanations of how sap flows up trees. My research has uncovered a myriad of explanations such as root pressure, capillary reaction, negative pressure. I've even seen it being used to validate a wave theory of gravity and the existence of dark matter. I'm not going to invent another one, but I am going to tell you a few facts and a few fables about this ever-present, but poorly understood, phenomena. When thinking about trees carrying sap up to its branches, you have to keep in mind that there are some living trees that are taller than two Olympic swimming pools and add an extensive root system and you could be talking about more than 150 metres of vertical distance for the sap to travel. Just to maintain such a column of water stationary against the force of gravity would require a force equal to that of 15 atmospheres of pressure or 15 times the pressure of air on Earth. It turns out that normal atmospheric pressure will not support a column of water anything more than 10 metres high which means air cannot be sucked to the tops of tall trees. 
So how does the water get there? One possibility is root pressure, generated through osmosis down in the root structure. Root pressure can be observed in many plants after decapitation, when there is a ample available moisture and humidities are high. If water continues to flow from the cut stem, then there must be root pressure pushing up against the force of gravity. This pressure has been measured and it's not enough to raise water to the tops of the tallest trees and the rate of movement is very slow. To prove this, Eduard Strasberger in 1890 took some 20 trees ranging in height from 12 to 22 meters tall and sawed them off at the base under, the, under a stream of water to keep the columns of water intact. The trees were then set in vats of copper sulfate and pyric acid. The trees were killed but the sap continued to flow. This demonstrated that the flow of water was not due to some kind of living pump. Many people are under the impression that capil capillary action is responsible for carrying water to the tops of trees. But this is not so. Tracheids and vessel elements, their diameters, prevent capillary from rising more than mm, half a metre or so, which is not nearly high enough. I won't try and debunk any more myths. I will tell you which of the theories that I believe. Water is not pumped to the tops of tall trees, nor does it rise by capillary action. Rather, it is pulled up against the force of gravity by transpiration from the leaves. The pulling force, or tension, extends all the way from the leaves down to the trunk and into the roots of the soil, where the water is first pulled into the plant. When inside small tubes, water actually has quite a lot of cohesive strength and can be pulled on without the column of water snapping or boiling or forming cavities, at least under normal conditions, that is. Xylem tracheids and vessel members have thick walls that prevent them from collapsing under this extreme tension. Because vessel members, particularly those in ring porous species, are wider and often more pipe-like with open ends, the resistance to water flow is much less. So that's how it happens. And lastly, the sap flow of the maple tree, and in particular the sugar maples, is the most fully studied because, very importantly, the sap is actively harvested to make delicious maple syrup. That was Dr. Keir Smith, leaving a good taste in your mouth. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2scr.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR 107.3, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. One thing that's puzzled mankind since the dawn of time is what attracts womankind to mankind. In 2003, Marion Carruthers placed a piece in the jigsaw puzzle of life on the involvement of the humble male armpit in the complex behaviour that is sexual attraction within our species. Beaches. Recent research in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania suggests that the smell of a man's armpit may have the effect of relaxing women. In addition, smelling a man's underarm may modify the lady's menstrual cycle in terms of both its length and timing. So what did these scientists do to come up with such a bizarre suggestion? 
Well, what they did was to extract the underarm secretions from pads worn by the male volunteers. Then, placing the pads under the nose of women, mercifully the pads also contained a fragrance to partially mask some odours, and then they monitored two things. First, they monitored the serum LH. This is the luteinizing hormone that is a key player in the women's menstrual cycle. Typically, the hormone is released in pulses by the brain throughout the month and gradually increases in frequency and size closer to ovulation. Now, the exposure to the underarm smell seemed to accelerate the hormone rush, thus speeding up the woman's cycle in length and timing. The second effect the researchers noted was the effect on the woman's mood. Apparently, the women were rated as more relaxed and calm. So what can we deduce from these results? Does it follow that a more relaxed woman becomes more receptive and therefore more fertile? Does it enhance the mystery that is physical attraction? Will these studies encourage perfume manufacturers to include essence of male underarm in their new fragrances? A scary thought, but not one without merit. Watch this space. That was the fragrant Marion Carruthers with the pheromic attraction of the male armpit. Are our symmetries failing us? What happens to all the stuff that's in your body long after you're dead? Dr. Boyd Dent is a geoscientist who might know. He's from the Department of Environmental Science at the University of Technology, Sydney. In 2003, he finished his PhD on the geochemistry of cemeteries, and Dr. Tim Baines asked him some great Dr. Dent, questions. Talk to me about our cemeteries. What happens with regard to the groundwater and leaching of perhaps the contents of our cemeteries into our groundwater that we, we may drink? What comes out of a cemetery? We've been able to quantify the inorganic chemistry of cemeteries and uh, basically been able to identify the fact that there are three main groups of analytes that come off cemeteries but they're in extremely small amounts. Uh, the main group is basically a bunch of simple salts like uh, magnesium, strontium, chlorine. Uh, the second group is uh, related to inorganic nitrogen forms nitrogen oxides and the total nitrogen and the third group is related to phosphorus and between them those three groupings make up something like 70 to 80 percent of what we might expect in the groundwater of cemeteries but there are other groupings which we haven't got a full handle on at the moment and they are the microbiological grouping and the organic chemical grouping and you mentioned there the, the microbial or the, the organic uh, contents in cemetery and perhaps in sound and groundwater. Um, I mean, in times gone past, people died of tuberculosis, maybe uh, smallpox. W what are the chances that's still around in in the bodies or around in cemeteries? And the chances of that getting out again? Well, that's an excellent question, which has been uh, very much at the forefront of my thinking about where we go to next with this information. The conventional wisdom says that when we bury a body, and presumably it's a diseased body in many cases, that the local interactions of the uh, grave uh, microflora and fauna and the uh, reactions within the body itself as it decomposes will take care of any problems and there will be no remnant pathogenic material left behind. It makes a lot of sense and it's been public burial policy and public health policy for a long period of time. but 
really it hasn't been scientifically investigated to any great degree. And the amount of information we have is scant on this, but the information is also showing us that conventional wisdom isn't right. In some sites, and I must stress that it's only some sites, and in some circumstances we do find the survival of pathogenic material, and in cemeteries which have been inappropriately located or inappropriately managed, there is a small chance that some of this material might leave the cemetery boundary. With crim being cremated, um, that, I mean, I, I don't know what the contents of the ashes that people uh, you have from after cremation, but does that have to be buried six feet by law, the same as bodies? Is there things in the ashes that are also of concern uh, when we you know, spread ashes around the environment? Yes, there are matters of concern, and again, this is another area that's been tapped by conventional wisdom. We basically have assumed that once we cremate a body, the organic material is all gone and any pathogens are destroyed. Now that's true, but what we're left behind is an inert mixture of basically calcium and phosphate and metals which have accumulated in the body during the lifetime of the person. So now we have the metal load that a person had in them taking up a very small volume. You can scatter ashes almost anywhere. There are rules about it driven by the EPA laws uh, or you can bury them or you can keep them on the family shelf and any one set of ashes is probably not a problem on its own but we do need to take into account what happens if you have maybe 10,000 sets of ashes in one particular area do we have a geochemical metal anomaly and the answer is yes but the my modelling would suggest that the amounts are fairly low and that we can control it and manage it, but we do need to put in place those management and control mechanisms. Has there been many other studies on this sort of thing before? Uh, to my knowledge there's been no other studies on this uh, exact area and there's been very little study of exactly what is in the remains themselves. Uh, there have been two chemical analyses of cremated remains in recent times. One of these was in 1951 in the United Kingdom and I believe the remains were obtained clandestinely and therefore the analysis may be somewhat suspect. And there was another analysis in 2001 in the United States. But each of these included just the analysis of one set of remains. So basically we don't have any knowledge. We, we really don't know where we're going. Um, I understand there's a, a, a British company uh, that's uh, planting trees instead of tombstones. They plant a tree where a person has been buried uh, as one way to reclaim the land that would otherwise be used by a cemetery. Um, I believe there's other types of, uh, of ideas of ways of reclaiming land used up by cemeteries. Yes, you're referring to the woodland burial concept, which has now taken off quite widely in the United Kingdom. 
uh, and is also present to a very small degree in the United States and largely not present but has started in Australia. The ideal situation is that you might take degraded land and by burying people there in a low um, polluting context, so in other words a coffin which uh, is possibly made of cardboard or something that will decompose quickly and without any monument markers or other um, gross features of the landscape or major roads or pathways and then planting trees and native shrubs over the top that you effectively return the area to a useful woodland area which then develops as its own unique ecosystem. This is, an air, this is a kind of burial which appeals to many people who just want to go when they're, when they're dead. They, want to be, they would like to be buried in a dignified way but they don't want to have any fuss or remnant left behind. They just want to blend into nature. Would this be a, a lower impact way in, in terms of referring back to uh, the effect on, on perhaps groundwater and the concentration of the remains? Uh, is being planted in, in a forest planted or you know, buried in a forest uh, a more ecologically sound way of dispersing your remains? I suspect in some cases that it would be but generally speaking we still have to comply with all the other criteria for siting a cemetery. It's still a cemetery it still has to be properly sited in terms of the hydrogeology of the site and it needs to be properly managed. You don't just choose any block of land and carry out this practice. It has to be planned and we have to understand what the landscape is uh, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Tim. That was Dr. Tim Baines, talking with Dr. Boyd Dent about grave matters in 2003. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. Send email with questions to diffusion at 2SER.com that's diffusion at 2SER.com and tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program from 2003 were Tim Baines, Keir Smith and Marion Carruthers. I produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. And Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar Diffusion Radio <laughs>